Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest episode of The Evolved Caveman. And today I am really, really excited to have with me Dr. Anne Louise Lockhart. And Anne Louise is someone that I feel like I've known for a long time, partly because of social media and Instagram in particular. And I've respected her work for a long time. And Anne Louise is a pediatric psychologist, a parent coach, an author, and a business owner of a thriving practice in San Antonio, Texas, a new day pediatric psychology. She is board certified in clinical child and adolescent psychology. She is a highly sought after speaker and writer on multiple platforms, speaking on parenting, childhood diagnoses, executive functioning, and racism. She is a West Indian woman, a wife of 21 years, a mom of two kids, and has over 15 years of experience as a pediatric psychologist. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Welcome, Dr. Anne Louise. Thank you very much, Dr. John. I'm glad to be here. I feel like I know you Um, too. (laughs) And and hopefully it's okay if I call you Anne Louise and and you may call me John. I Okay. I just want to make sure I don't mean any disrespect, but um, would you... Please tell us how you got to this point in your life, because that story in itself is fascinating. Yeah. So uh, I'm originally from the Caribbean. So I was born and raised on the island of St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. And my original goal was to uh, go into business and fashion because my mom and her sister had a children's clothing store on the island for about 30 years. And I used to do um, like fashion merchandising where I'll do like the display in the windows in the store. I would go on buying trips to Puerto Rico and Florida um, uh, to help them like stock the store. Like I loved it. That's, that was my thing. And so I had a job since I was like nine years old at my mom's store and I would do payroll. (laughs) I mean, it was like awesome. I loved it. Um, So that was my goal. And then my senior year hit in high school and we got hit by a hundred year hurricane that destroyed the family business, my home, um, my school. And, uh, we had no running water or electricity for nine months. We were under martial law for a long period of time and got bit by infected mosquitoes and got dead gay. I mean, it was horrible. It's my senior year. And I'm like, okay, well, this sucks. So my mom made me stay on the island because she said that we don't run from our problems and we persist. I thought that was so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and courageous at the same time. Right, totally. But you know, I mean, I'm 17 at the time. So I was like, you know, that's that's a dumb reason. Like we need to, like, how is this a good thing? And so anyway, it was great because up until that point, I was a terrible student in high school. I did not like school. And my senior year, I was so motivated to get the heck off that island. I uh, did well. I persisted and I applied myself and I got a bunch of awards, got auto roll, and I got into uh, the two colleges that I applied to because um, I wrote an amazing essay about my experience, the traumatic experience of the hurricane and being homeless and having to eat military and Red Cross food and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so I went to college and I ended up going to um, Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. And people are like, are you crazy? But my idea was I wanted to get as far away from natural disasters as I possibly could. Well, hurricanes. I mean, I know Buffalo has its own natural disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so then I got there and once I took a bunch of courses, I just was like, wow, this is learning can be fun. This is like amazing. 
And I changed my major about six different times, ended up with psychology. And um, yeah, and then from there, I just kind of moved along. I got a master's in education, got some more experience in counseling, and then I fell upon clinical psychology and doing therapy. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I evolved over time and how I got to where I am today is just kind of getting different experiences and being open to new experiences. And um, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that interested me when we first talked was that you fell in with the military and working with military families, which gave you this breadth of experience, which is somewhat rare. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was um, in my doctorate program in Arizona, and I had experiences working with abused kids, homeless children, uh, kids who were in the... Um, adjudication system and just really like last chance kids. Everybody had just already given up on them. And I just really had a heart for these families and kids who had gone through a lot of stuff. And then when I had an opportunity to do my doctoral internship, uh, it was in 2004, the war had just started and uh, there was an opportunity to work with the Air Force, the Navy or the Army. And so I applied to all of them as a civilian. I was considering also as active duty and when I interviewed with the army, I'm like, this, this is it. Because it was, I was able to still be a civilian, but be trained up and to work with the kids and teenagers of the service members, as well as the service members themselves. And it was a fantastic opportunity to work with service members who had been deployed, who had been injured mentally and physically. I worked on the burn unit. I worked with the amputees. Um, It was it was fascinating and it was amazing. And I really, it was, it was really eye-opening to see a different kind of suffering and to know that I could have an impact in a very major way. And so, yeah, I loved it. And I ended up staying there for 10 years. They tried to get me to join the military every moment I was there, but I, I really loved working with that population and working with their families and really contributing to the country in a, in a unique way as a civilian um, member. And so what was, what were the breadth of issues that you got exposed to? I see PTSD, I see trauma in a big way. Um, And then what other issues were there and how did that kind of lead you to parenting work? So I worked part of the time with the service members. And so I worked on the burn unit, which I couldn't handle for too long. I did that for a few months. That's rough. That's real rough. That's real rough. Uh, So I did that. Uh, That was a a no-go for me. Um, I worked with a lot of the students who were in AIT. So this was beyond basic training. And these were individuals who were getting specialized training. So it was like medics, like x-rays, techs, mental health techs, that kind of stuff. And helping them because they wanted, they called them woodsies, wanted out of the service. And um, they they were like, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have joined. And helping them work through that, well, you committed, you can't just leave. (laughs) And, you know, the adjustment of that and working on their trauma from their childhood that they never addressed and that is now being resurfaced as a young adult. Uh, I worked, I did sniper evaluations with the Air Force. I worked with the Air Force for a while. And that was my most favorite, actually. Because a lot. Can you say why? Yeah. Well, because. You know, people assume that, oh, you're in the military, you have PTSD if you had a really hard hard job and were deployed. And that's not the case. Like mm-hmm. a lot of these guys, because there were there were guys mainly who were the snipers, they they loved their job and they were prepared for them, pre- prepared for it. They were trained to do it and they loved it and they were good at it. So when they came back and I did the 
uh, post-deployment sniper evaluations, they were they were fine. <laughs> and so people here, people are thinking, oh, they're going to mess up. They can't reintegrate into normal life. And they did just great. And so well, and, if, and we talked, sorry for interrupting. No, we talked a little bit about Dennis Charney's work on the Vietnam POWs and who had been prisoners of war for six to eight years. And this group of, I think, 750 came out virtually unscathed. And and that to me is amazing. So yeah, I think that there's some percentage of the population that can go through either being a sniper or far more kind of horrific experiences and be psychologically healthy, which is amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's not just post-traumatic stress. There's also post-traumatic growth, yeah. right? And so we like what happened to me after the hurricane. Like at first I was like, I'm out, peace, <laughs> right? But then going through it, it actually made me stronger. It helped me to be a more resilient person. So even, so really to this day, even when traumatic events happen, yes, initially I'm not like all tough and all like, you know, nothing bothers me. Of course it bothers me. But for me, I have found that because of the traumatic experiences that I've been through in my life, it has helped me actually reframe it and then to move past it to see the silver lining in it. I do that even with movies. You know, my husband and I are watching like a really bad movie and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm out. And I'm like, no, it might get better. <laughs> <laughs> right? I just have more of an optimistic outlook on things because I feel like although life can be sucky at times, there's also times when we can grow as a result of it. And that's how I see it. And that's why I really love working in that pop- with that population and in that setting because there was such a range of experiences and jobs that they had from, you know, the medics to the mental health techs, to the radio, um, the t- uh, x-ray techs, to all just all these people who had different jobs and they were all impacted differently, primarily, yeah. honestly, because of their history too. Yeah. Well, and if I can jump in there, one of the things that it makes me think is one of the ways to go from post-traumatic stress or those traumatic experiences to post-traumatic growth is by asking yourself the question, what am I supposed to learn from this? And I know you know this, but this is for the listeners. I think it's one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves. And I think that growth and lifelong learning are two of the most important values we can have in this lifetime. I just think that's what we're supposed to do in this lifetime is continue to grow. I think as soon as we shut down our growth, we're beginning to die. I agree. I agree. Um, And I think when I look at that with clients too, it's the same thing. Like when we look at nature and we look at how nature adapts to change and, and how it grows, it's the same thing. We don't drink stagnant water, for example, because we'll get sick. We drink from flowing water, fresh springs, those kinds of things. And I think that that's for me, post-traumatic growth or growth after trauma happens because we move, move our bodies, move our minds, move into our into relationships, into hobbies. And because I, I do think that one of the things that's a guarantee in this life is that life is going to suck at times. It is going to be painful. There is no Absolutely. other way. There's no free pass mm-hmm. through life. So the question is really, how do you best deal with those difficult times? Actually, definitely, definitely, because I think that we think, oh, and I and I found this a lot, especially when I work with the military family members, that many of them did have traumatic pasts and childhoods, which is why they were getting into the military. They're trying to escape that. They're trying to have something that was more stable and more guaranteed, more structured, and yeah. more structured, right? And but the thing is, a lot of them that I would meet with, they were like, yeah, my life was crappy, and you know, this sucked, and I'm like, okay, 
I think I've, I've filled up the crap bowl and from full, this, <laughs> this time forward, life should be easy. And I mm-hmm. see that a lot when I work with people with traumatic pasts, because I worked a lot with child abuse and rape survivors. And that, that was that same mentality that I've had so much on my plate for so long that it should be smooth sailing from here on out. And I'm like, yeah. I totally get it. That's not the way life works. Well, and, and that's the way it should be ideally, it should be. but it's not. And, <laughs> no. and, 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 you know, that's, it's funny because I think we're all born and I'm, I don't know how we get this thought or this belief, but I think we believe at some point early on that life should be fair. And yet it's not. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know where that comes I, from. But I do know where that comes from because I work with kids too, right? Because what I hear from kids and what parents often tell their kids is good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Right. And we do that through rewards and punishments. Oh, you're such a good boy. You studied hard and you got an A. Well, sometimes you can study hard and you flunk. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you can do all the right things and you still get into that car accident. Sometimes yep. you could be the most faithful spouse and you still get cheated on. Like it doesn't, it's not always a one to one. Like sometimes life sucks even when you do all the right things. And I think yeah. that foundational belief, that core belief gets set as a kid. When we do make those, we equate that good is good, bad is bad, and all bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to good people. So I, there was a segue back there that I totally lost the segue because it was a couple minutes ago. But we were talking about growth and how you know it's one of the goals of life or themes of life, ideally. Moving using that as a jump to parenting, it's interesting to me because I see more men than women or more fathers than mothers get to this place where they're like, no, I'm good. Like, I don't want to grow anymore. Love me as I am. What's been your experience with that? Well, I think parenting is hard <laughs> and it can be a challenge. And I don't think people no doubt. realize, yeah, I don't think people realize how hard parenting is because when you look at the parenting books that have historically been out there, it's always like preparing for the baby, right? And weaning and feeding and, and potty training. It's been, but parenting is much more than that. That's like a very short period of time. Wait till you get to the teenage years. I mean, really? And so those things, I think what happens is that people aren't mentally prepared for that. They don't understand that Um, yeah, at each stage of parenting, you're growing in different ways. You have to be a different parent when they're a newborn versus when they're walking versus when they're in school versus when they're a teenager versus when they're an adult, you have to change. Or if I can jump in there, you, I think you also have to ideally be a different parent to different children. Absolutely. Like you have to parent to the individual children. Just if you're a coach of a sports team, you have to coach your individual players differently too, based on their needs. Exactly. Absolutely. So if you have more than one child, you're going to have to parent differently because you might have a child who's very sensitive, a child who everything rolls off their back, one who's introverted, one who's extroverted, and you cannot parent them exactly the same. And I think Mm -hmm. parents think it's being unfair or not treating them equally. And I'm like, well, you're not supposed to Back to the fair idea. Right, right. We're not supposed to be treating them equally we're treating them equitably. We're giving them mm-hmm. what they need, not what all kids this age need. It's it's what that individual child needs. Well, and, and I, you know, Jory, my, my fiance, or you know of her, um, one of the questions that she'll ask parents is, are you parenting your child as they are? Or are you parenting your child as you wanted to be parented at that age? Great question. <clears throat> and those are two different things also. Mm-hmm. 
Um, because I think a lot of times we're reparenting ourselves, but that may not be what your child needs in that moment. Absolutely. And I think that I, I often say too, that people parent imaginary children because it's for that I same have 16 reason. imaginary children. What are well, you talking yeah. about? Because <laughs> it's for that same thing, right? Like you have this kid in front of you and you want them to be that straight A student that you were, or you yeah. want them to be that athlete that you never could be. Right. And so it's like, but that's not who that child is. So that's an imaginary kid. You got to parent the kid yeah. in front of you. And so I think that's where as parents, we get stagnant because we get stuck in feeling embarrassed about our kid, annoyed about our kid or confused. Why are they like this? How did I birth this kind of kid? And, and we don't get it. We don't get how each child is different or how they're so different from their sibling when that's not the kid that you have in front of you. And I think that's where growth stops. And that's how relationships between parents and kids get ruptured. Well, it's, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about, so I have four kids and most of my kids are up, you know, growing up and out of the house, but my youngest is uh, my daughter's 16. Um, but one of my sons was ODD, oppositional defiant, <clears throat> and very, very difficult to parent. And he was misbehaving as a teenager. Well, you know, I'm in the community as a psychologist and that was embarrassing to me. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, not only are you embarrassing yourself, you're embarrassing me. And, and that wasn't how I was as a kid also. So it was really hard to connect to. Um, but I remember that there was a point at which I had to realize, okay, wait, his behavior is embarrassing me. That's leading to more anger in me. I need to find a way to distance myself psychologically from him. And so I would remind myself for some days that this is his path. These are his choices. This is his life. At some point, he's going to have to claim responsibility for his own life. And this is when he was a, you know, an older teenager. Um, because I, I think at some point, the more I get wrapped up in his misbehavior, the worse I parent. That's Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because we, you know, I, I remind parents all the time when I'm doing parent coaching that we cannot, I know it's easier said than done, but we cannot take our kids' behaviors personally. And so often why I think parents reach out for help or why they get frustrated or embarrassed or annoyed at their kids is because they think it's this personal vendetta against them that they have that, you know, that you're, um, I hate, you know, hate being home all the time. Like, Oh, you know, we're, we're providing for you and how you should be grateful about what we've done or isn't what we're doing enough. And of course we love you. And then like, it's not a, it's not about you. It's about them. We have to look at what is it that our teenager or our kid needs that goes beyond our ego, parent ego. It's about yeah. them. And that's what teenagers tell me. When I've done a lot of therapy sessions with teenagers and kids, that's what they consistently say, that my parents don't get me, they don't understand me, and they take my behavior or my feelings personally. And they, they make it about them. And it's not yeah. about them. So what would you say in terms of, as a parent, speaking to or parenting to the emotion underneath the behavior of your child? Because I, I think that's a big one where we get lost a lot too. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I mean, it's no wonder because many of us weren't parented that way, right? We were told to suck it up or... Well, many of us on. are emotional idiots. <laughs> right. Not to put too fine a point on it, but... No, you know. but, but it's true. I mean, we most of us have come from parents who ignored feelings, didn't talk about feelings, pushed down our feelings, brushed past our feelings. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> were you in my family growing... Oh, wow, that's really weird. Like, yeah, I, I just... And I joke about it now because I'm like, 
I came from a good German family. We didn't have feelings. And it's funny that across cultures and ethnic groups, it's the same. I grew up on an island and it's the same way. Family-wise, cultural-wise, we don't talk about feelings. So it's weird to them that I'm even in this profession because talking about feelings was not our default. We just glossed over them or pretended they didn't exist. So then it's no wonder that as adults and as parents, we're so uncomfortable when our kids have big emotions because it feels uncomfortable feels uncomfortable. How dare you have a big feeling that I don't know how to handle? So when we hear these this advice, which I used to make fun of, but I think it totally is true, <laughs> is about holding space. I used to giggle, giggle. Oh, yep, I, heard that. Yep. Oh, I think it's space. a great phrase, actually. It's a great phrase, but, and it's true. And one of my good friends, that's what her name for a podcast is, you know, it's holding space. Oh. And I think it's so true that we have to, we have to show our kids that you're emotions are not too big for me. And when we can just sit with our kid in those emotions and realize what's driving that behavior, which is often the emotions, then rather than punishing and lecturing and nagging the behavior, we can meet them where they're at emotionally. We can meet them where they're at in terms of their needs and speak to and comfort that emotion and that need so that we're not taking it personally we're not overreacting and we're learning to just be present with them and helping them identify right. what it is that they're feeling. Well, and, and an extension of that, I also like teach, teaching them some basic skills after they've calmed down to help them get out of that emotion more quickly the next time it happens. Because a lot of times what we do is we'll say, go to your room. Like, I don't like you when you're acting like this, which is basically telling them you can't show this emotion anymore or you know, go hide yourself until you can come out and be calm right. instead of just, no, I'm good with whatever you're feeling and whatever you're feeling is normal and natural. And then after you've gone through it, let's find out some ways to mitigate or turn down the volume on those uncomfortable emotions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I saw several years ago, or maybe it was just a couple years ago. Um, it was a movie where um, the character, the little boy had lost his mom And he had hit this other mom's little boy. And she came to him and she said, we do not hit, that is not appropriate. He's like, I am mad. And she's like, yeah, I'm mad too. Let's just sit here together and be mad. And I was like, wow, that's really good. And she just sat there with him. Yeah. And it seems so simple. And yet we don't do it. No. And it's because it's hard to do because it feels uncomfortable because we think, oh, you should not feel this way. This is not one of those good feelings. That's a bad feeling. So I need to shut it down as soon as possible because then what, who knows what could happen. But then what I noticed again is parenting the wrong child or imaginary kid. Parents, what they do is that they fast forward and time travel 10 years into the future and think about, oh, he's going to be, he's going to beat up his wife or he's going to like rob a store because he can't control his emotions. I'm like, okay, he is three years old. Let's dial it back. <laughs> he is not a psychopath well, and he's not a wife beater. Let's dial it and, back. And this um, this dynamic really makes me, there's a parallel, I think, in relationships. And I mean, I guess any relationship, but in marriage comes to mind where I'll coach men when their wife comes home from work and is venting to them. And our men, you know, we have that, we're like, let me fix it. I, I can problem solve this for you, which gets annoying and tells your spouse that she can't handle it. And that just angers them. But so what I've said is instead, like pause your wife and just say, Hey, listen, I can see you need some support. How can I best support you right now? Do you want me to just listen 
do you want me to give you a hug or do you want me to try and fix it? And inevitably, or, or most times, women will say, I just need you to listen. And what I've noticed is that, so now you know what you need to do as the man, the husband, and yet we still can't do it. Because what happens is, because of empathy, we pick up our loved one's pain, discomfort, anger, sadness, whatever it is, and we can't sit with it. And so it brings up that need to problem solve and fix again, and we're back in the same place. Absolutely. And the parallel is the same with parent kids, the same parallel, right? Because that's the same thing that I coach parents to do with their children. So their child comes home and says, so-and-so is picking on me in the playground and the teacher wasn't doing anything. And then I got in trouble. And then they're like, what's, what's that kid's name? What's their parents' name? Let me find their phone number. And you're like trying to rescue them and fix it when maybe they just wanted to vent. Maybe yeah. they, maybe they want um, solutions. Yes. But how do you know what they need? And so many times parents will be like, well, then I do ask them, well, what would you like to do? And they don't know. I'm like, well, of course they don't know because you've spent so many years fixing it and telling them what they need to do. Yeah. So now they're clueless about how to solve their own problems and how to find solutions to their problems. So yeah, it's the same thing about just sitting, sitting with that distress, sitting with those big emotions and communicating verbally and non-verbally that you're, this problem isn't too much for me. I can yeah. handle it. You don't have to be the parent here. You don't have to shield me from your discomfort. And I can handle it. I'm here to support you. It's an it's so, amazing gift. Yeah, and, and I agree, absolutely. And let's shift um, topics slightly to what do you say to parents when they have starkly different parenting styles? So, and, and I think this is really, really common, right? Because I think there's gender differences where men often are dads, often are there to kind of almost promote more risky behaviors to get the sympathetic nervous system. Up. You know, like you think of the, the dad throwing the baby up and there's that old meme of, you know, what, <laughs> what the dad sees and the baby's about a foot from his hands up in the air, what the baby sees and the baby's like three feet up in the air and what the mom sees and the baby's like 50 feet up in the air. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think there's some, some real truth to the idea that husbands or fathers are there in part to help kids almost dysregulate or to spike that sympathetic nervous system to get the heart racing faster. And then they can calm them down. Whereas the moms are often more about nurturing and triggering that sympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxation response. So I think there's just fundamental differences at times, but what do you, how do you approach those different parenting styles? Mm-hmm. I love it when I actually do that. That's one of the things I, I have specialized in is helping parents get on the same page, but also understanding that you don't have to necessarily be on the same page. Uh-huh. I think that having two different parenting styles, because again, yes, I think it's different based on gender, based on generation, especially if you have mm-hmm. a spouse who's very, very much older or younger than you. Um, it could be cultural differences, regional differences. And I, I, what I tell them is the way that I see it is having two parents that are very different can be very complementary to a child. It can be something that could be beneficial to them, just like mm-hmm. mixing red and blue makes purple. You know, you have a different a different outcome. And I, I told them that I, I usually tell them that I think the goal here is not to be exactly the same parent in the same way and approach the same thing. I think that's that's boring and it's not necessary. I think what's more important is to make sure that your parent goals and the end goal is on the same page. And the way you go about getting there could look very different. But what I often see is when 
I have couples who come in, usually a, um, a dad and a mom. The dad often feels like I'm wrong because she tells me that I am and that I need to fix things because she's yeah. watched every podcast, blog, and conference and read every book. And she's aware of parenting and I'm clueless. And that's not a great way to start the, the conversation about parenting. So I think it's about knowing that what are our ultimate parent goals? And often once they articulate them, they realize it's really the same. I want yeah. happy, healthy children who feel nurtured, loved, and cared for. And that we feel like we're not losing our minds, that we at least have some boundaries and limitations and we don't feel out of control. It's usually somewhere around that vicinity. I'm like, well, well, and, we... and I think, sorry, oh, I, I think you're absolutely right that I, I think just that idea alone is incredibly powerful of, no, no, there's a reason that you're parenting from different places and that's okay. It's even desirable a lot of the times. Yep. And when you have that reframe, you're just like, oh, okay. So it's, it's okay that we're not on the same page. Like it, just giving them permission yes, is often a huge step. Absolutely. I don't think it has to be on the same page. I don't think, you know, when, when partners and spouses are very different, I actually think it can be more, it's more balancing because, but you have to be on the same accord in terms of balancing what your ultimate goals are. Because if not, that's how you get that problem child or the perfect child or the overperforming child because they're trying to balance things out because you two can't get on the same page. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to make sure like, what, what are we doing this for? What is our ultimate goal? So that you're not just parenting on autopilot based on how you were parented. You're parenting very intentionally and complimentary. Well, and, and one of the um, situations that I've seen, I don't know with with some regularity is where you get parents that have a different guiding value for their kids. And, and the, the biggest example that comes to mind is I've seen, you know, let's say a dad who believes that money is the overarching principle and value that that's what you need to strive for. And the mom is like, well, no, it's love and connection. And I've seen that lead to sort of, I mean, and, and I guess that gets back to your idea of the parenting goals aren't really on the same page then. Yeah. But I think that's where being honest and saying, okay, what is it that you both value? And you don't have to value the same thing. Again, there's mm -hmm. something that brought the two of you together on some level. So you don't have to value the same thing, but what are those things that are uh, serve as a foundation to what you value? So maybe one person values nature and being outside and the other one prefers just to be at home and be in the peace and quiet. Okay. So that's very different. It's hard to do both, but how can you meet halfway? How can you compromise and then provide your children both experiences, especially if you have kids who are very different personalities. And so I think yeah. it's providing that balance and to say, okay, these are not, we're not on the same page with these areas, but what are you on the same page with? Or part of being in a partnership is to be, um, to compensate and to collaborate with one another to find out, okay, I need to give a little bit and I need to also then compromise a little bit as well too. So I think, I think need, there needs to be a give and take because otherwise the children are going to sense that tension and it will cause triangulation in the family where the mm -hmm. kid becomes a problem kid. Because I noticed that mom and dad, for example, are at war with one another. So if I become the issue, then hopefully they can join hands against a common, common enemy. And you do not want that. Right. Um, it's amazing to me how much of this comes down to values. I, oh, like, yeah. 
I keep coming back to values individually, relationally, in terms of parenting. And I'm amazed at how many people out there don't have much awareness of what their own top values are. How do you, when you talk about values to people, how do you, what's your pitch? How do you get them to care about values? Yes. I, I really talk about it in the sense that values are what drive our core beliefs. It, I, I really see values as things that shape our views about politics, society, families, relationships, ourselves, our careers. And it has been shown that people who are in jobs, for example, that are in an alignment with their values, they're more satisfied. People who work in settings that are more in alignment with their values, they're more satisfied. So like when I have high school students and college students who reach out to me who want to be a psychologist, for example, and I speak with them and I'm like, you know, I, it's not just about being a psychologist. I mean, there's so many types of psychologists. You have to think about, well, what type of psychologist do you want to be based on what you value? Do you value learning and discovering or or healing, or are um, this finding new information. So, do you want to be a neuropsychologist, or a developmental psychologist, or a research psychologist, a health psychologist? And then, on top of that, do you like to be in nature? Do you want to be where there's a lot of learning? So, do you want to work in a college town, or a rural area, or urban? Like, there's all these things to consider, all based on values. Mm-hmm. Because if you are in alignment with that. Um, and you're in that setting, in that specialty, you're more likely to be satisfied. And so when I think about that, I think about your values drives your core beliefs, which then drives your decisions. And you it leads to more life satisfaction. So if you say, I value nature, but you never go outside and you never do anything in, the, in nature, and then you feel depressed and miserable, well, maybe that's why. You're literally not engaging in the thing that you value. And it's just making that simple shift. And it's it's funny. It makes me think of this uh, case I've been working with recently where a man had values, which led to core beliefs. And the core beliefs, I was asking him about these, about, you know, to what extent do you see people as generally honest versus dishonest on a one to a hundred scale? Because I think that really drives a lot of our behavior, that one belief. Because if you think if people are out to screw you and if they're generally dishonest and they're going to hurt you, why would you even bother trying to connect with new people? And his values were driving his belief about people that he thought most people, you know, five, 10 years ago, he thought most people were generally honest. Then he gets really, really burned at work and betrayed. And now his belief is only about 20% of people are honest. And I was like, my suggestion is that you make a conscious decision to change that number and let's work on ways to kick it up the scale because that is not serving you. Right. Um, yeah, just it, th- that interaction between values and core beliefs or primal world beliefs is pretty fascinating stuff. It is. And, and different things like traumatic events and um, yep. failed relationships and discrimination and heartbreak, all of those things can change it because if you're, you value family, and your spouse betrays you, and you're like, or your children are acting up and then getting involved with you know problems with the law, then that that really can be triggering and it can be very it dismantles that like, okay, well, if this is what I believe and I value, and I can't even get that. Do I shift my values? Do I say screw it? Like, what do I do with that? 
Well, and I think some of these can be little T trauma. Some of them can be big T trauma. Like I think about, um, forgive me because I'm really overstepping my bounds here, but I think about like microaggression, microaggressions due to racism, how that's like a slow drop over time, right? Just a gradual accumulation of drops that could uh, undermine your belief in the goodness of people. Mm-hmm. Totally. Exactly. Cause then you're like, well, great. You know, they've screwed me up once again. And again, you know, all these people are bad or can't trust yeah. those people, or I'm never going to open up about that thing again. And so, yeah. yeah, that could really then shape our views and our interactions and what we end up valuing. So totally, I think we have to pay attention I, to that. And I like, I don't know if you're familiar with Jared Clifton's work on primal world beliefs, but I think this is a really, really new, it's new and really powerful line of research that what he's finding is that these, I think there's about 27 or 28 core beliefs that we hold about the world. And then I kind of extend them to people and self, but he's finding that these core beliefs seem to be foundational for our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions, which if true would be pretty astounding. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you this. So before we started this interview, you shared that you had just done a presentation yesterday on how to parent your child who is not like you. Yes. So share a little bit with us about that, because that's fascinating to me. It is fascinating. The the school is uh, two schools in New York city and the private schools. And they reached out to me because the, one of the coordinators was inspired by an article that she found that was on around the same title. And um, she asked me if I'd done a presentation like that before. And I'm like, no, I haven't, but I'm intrigued. And I think that I'm definitely on board with doing it. And um, and it was really cool because, I mean, that could go all kinds of ways, right? And so we, it was really about talking to them about different parenting styles, how different parenting styles lead to different childhood outcomes in terms of mood, uh, self-esteem, relationships, academic performance. But then also why it bothers you so much when your child is different from you because you feel embarrassed and confused and overwhelmed and annoyed and and then what to do about that and so we talked about learning how to sit with that discomfort it's okay if your child is different from you doesn't make it better or worse it just is and also how to reframe that for themselves you know whether it's a self script an affirmation or a mantra and really talking to them about moving away from parenting the wrong child or parenting a future child or parenting out of fear. And instead, um, really a big thing for me is educating your child about their personality. Because I think a lot of people, they realize, okay, this is who I am and outgoing, or I'm very quiet or shy or whatever, but then not really educating their child on their personality. Because typically the extroverted kids who are fun and easygoing, they're always praised for that. But the shy, introverted kid who's quiet is then said, why can't you be like your brother? Or why can't you speak up? Or you're embarrassing me, right? That's not educating them. That's humiliating and shaming them on it. And so I told them that a big step could be even helping their child identify what that personality is and doing it from a strengths-based perspective so that they understand that, okay, if you feel quirky and weird and really quiet or whatever it is, Uh, I gave them some uh, tools in terms of looking up some different personality styles and how to assess that. And then really saying, yeah, the reason why, like I had one teenager once who she was told I'm dead inside. (laughs) People keep saying I'm dead inside because she was so introverted, but her cup would get full real quick and she would withdraw and come back and then feel good. And when we assessed her, she had one of those personality types that I think it was like 5% of the population. So I'm like, yeah, you're truly an outlier. 
That's why you feel different because you are, but it's not a bad thing. And so I, you know, really educating your kid on this is who you are. So it makes you so unique and amazing. And this is why blank. This is why blank. This is why you're slow to warm up. This is why you don't, you know, whatever it is so that they understand that. And then that way they can appreciate themselves and you can learn how to appreciate them and then really promote that part of themselves. And if they want to change it, helping them change it as well too. If they want to be more outgoing, they want to learn how to speak up for themselves, then make sure they're doing it for the right reasons and then giving them the tools to do that. So it was just a really you know, great discussion about that. I loved it. I, I love that. Thank you. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind about my son who was oppositional defiant that really helped me turn things around in my own head is research that showed that the very traits that drive you nuts as a parent of these kids serve them well when they're adults. So, you know, argumentative, convicted of their values or their beliefs, stubborn, very good um, at saying no to things. I, I mean, like those can make for a pretty good executive. Totally. The, the other thing that I think is interesting is I'm always celebrating weirdness. Like I think to your point of people feel like, you know, a duck out of water, fish out of water, or they just feel like they don't belong. And I think that I've, over the years, I've just seen that to be such a common self-perception that, you know, my all of clients come in and say, you know, I just want to feel normal. And I'm like, don't sell yourself short. Like, I don't want you to feel normal. Normal's boring. Like, I want you to feel something beyond normal, but it's not going to be like anyone else typically. Um, and I'll share my own weirdness or geekiness or strange passions with them, like, you know, comic books or, you know, all the things that I was ashamed of when I was a kid, right? That wasn't cool. Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and, you know, animation. I, I think we all have these idiosyncrasies and that's what makes us human, beautiful and lovable. Right. And it's so funny because we try to be different and unique or we try to be normal and like everybody else, but it's like, what is normal compared to what? It's all relative. It's all a matter of perspective. And, you know, even like when I remember when it was a period of time when I was seeing a lot of kids who were in their emo, emo phase, right. And they're like, Oh, I want to be emo because I want to be unique and different. So that actually being weird was a thing, but then you look at them and they all look the same too. Everyone's emo. Everyone's emo, right. They all look the same. And so it's like, well, it's about like you celebrating who you are and being happy with that so that you don't feel like you're always trying to just follow the crowd and what they think they want from you. And, And I think that to the extent, you know, your own values as like a teenager and you can follow those values and be comfortable in your own authenticity. And just being comfortable with who you are, which admittedly is pretty hard at 15. But mm-hmm. you know, to the extent you can do that, I think you're going to be better off. So what are some other ways that you see parents and kids differing and any other ideas on how to sort of mitigate that or be more comfortable with a, a child who's different than you? Yeah, I think one way that I see it is, for example, uh, a lot of parents who are very driven, very successful, very career or education oriented. And you have a kid who's like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's hard for a lot of parents because they see that as laziness, which I don't like that word. Um, oh, I hate they see it. That, yeah. Or they see that as um, there's something wrong with my kid or they must have some mental health diagnosis because there's they're, they're, this is clearly not normal 
Um, they're trying to fix them in some way. And I see that as a major, major issue because there's a lot of teenagers that I see that I'm like, there's nothing wrong with your kid. Like there's no mental yeah. health diagnosis here. They're just different than you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I see also there's a often a pendulum swing in a lot of these traits between parents and, and children where you know you get a high achieving parent or parents. And then on the other side, the child may not be that interested in doing that. Uh, maybe he sees the toll it's taken on the parents. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, I, and then mm-hmm. maybe it goes back the other way, the next generation. Right. Um, what What's your thoughts on self-esteem? This is a little bit self-esteem versus self-worth. I, I mean, and, and I'm curious about it because I think that we had this big push for self-esteem for many years in psychology. Yes. We thought it was going to be the panacea, the, it was going to be the fix to everything. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. I self-esteem in my in, in my opinion, the way I perceive it and, and conceptualize it is self-esteem is really based on comparison to other people. <laughs> because then if other people around you are lame and 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 unintelligent and not high achieving and not rich like me, then I'm better than them. And, and then it, the flip goes too. So then I fail something or I don't achieve something, and now I'm a loser because they did really good and they didn't even have to study for their thing. And it's like, well, self-esteem is so like unstable and so unpredictable and so not fair to you (laughs) because then, you know, I see this all the time with people like, well, how is it that you were a good parent yesterday or last week? And then you're a terrible parent this week. How did it change so quickly? How were you a smart student? And now you just are, you should just give up and drop off, you know, like, and so I think self-esteem is very much based in comparison and it's a very fragile thing. And it's very unpredictable. To me, self-concept or self-worth is more stable because it's something, it's part of your value system. It could be who you are, regardless of what's happening around you. And it could be something that you're like, I value this, or this is who I am. And regardless of my circumstances, it doesn't change my identity. It doesn't change my worth because I still am a person of value, whether I succeed or whether I fail does not make me a failure. So do you see self-compassion as figuring into self-worth? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for me, if I can give you a quick personal example, when I studied for my psychology licensing exam many, many years ago, a lot of that was based on my self-esteem. People, I was in the military system. They're like, oh, you're going to do great. You're so smart. You're brilliant. You're going to pass. I'm studying. I'm like, oh, I'm amazing. Amazing. And I took it and I failed by like three points. It was horrible. It was embarrassing. It was devastating. And then on top of that, there was this chick I was working with who didn't hardly even studied and she uh-huh. passed with flying colors, which makes it even worse, right? Uh-huh. And I was like, what the heck? And so because at the time I was getting licensed in another state working for the military, I had to wait six months before I could retake it. And I was so angry. And I felt, I'm like, well, if I can't pass my psychology license, then maybe I shouldn't be a psychologist. Maybe I'm not smart enough because, oh, well, she's smarter than me. And so during that time, I do a lot of work on myself and I had to get to the point where I'm like, my worth is not based on whether I pass or fail this darn thing. So then I took it again and I passed and did great. But the cool thing about it was I told myself whether I pass or fail this time, it's going to be irrelevant. Because my worth is still stable and it's there. And I really worked on myself for that. And the cool thing about that is all those years after when I was still working in the the military hospital, 
anytime we would get in a psychology resident who would come in and they were struggling with their exam, they would always say, oh, Senator Dr. Lockhart, she failed too. So I was able to support them through their struggle because they did see me as someone who would have struggled with it, but I was, and it really helped them along their path. And and I think that's a really, really good point because I, I think that it's often our failures or the places where we stumble or the struggles that we've had in life that A, connect us to other people and B, put us in a position where we can be empathetic and understanding and supportive, which is a big freaking deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then it's like, because a lot of them, they went straight through school, straight through their doctorate program, never failed anything in their life. And so it was a major thing for them. So to know that, okay, I mean, there was this one student who took it six times. I was like, dude, you are persistent. He's like, I'm going to get there. So to this day, he's full blown into the military. And he's like, I always thank you for being there for me to help me do that. Well, and and one of the things that fascinates me is I was talking with a client at one of the top universities in the world recently, and she made the mistake of thinking that because the people that she's working with are so incredibly intelligent, that they're also kind emotionally aware, good communicators and sane. And, and she's a statistician. So we were talking about this and I explained that that was not the case. And she's like, oh my God, they're orthogonal. And I was like, says the statistician. <laughs> That's a little yeah, statistics joke there, I guess. But I, I mean, it, I, but I, it makes me think of those people that get through the, the licensing exam with flying colors, probably really, really bright, probably have a great, great memory. But do they have any experience they can call on? Do they have emotional awareness? How are their communication skills? And you know, we don't know, but we're, we're a complex bag of abilities, traits, knowledge. And, and, yeah. and you know, the interesting thing is that because I was able to have that kind of self-compassion eventually for myself, and I look back on it and I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter that in 2006, I failed my psychology licensing exam. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's, nope. it's irrelevant. And so a couple of years later, when I went to my board certification, I remember when I was going through the process, I, I felt it was different. The feeling was different because I'm like, you know what? Whether I do well or not, it doesn't change my worth and it does not change my value. That's self-worth. That's self-compassion. Yeah. Self-esteem was what happened when I was you know, devastated and depressed after I failed my exam. And so I yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I appreciate what you said about self-esteem and self-worth, because I absolutely agree. I'm not a fan of self-esteem. I think self-esteem is predicated or hinges upon how well we did on our last achievement mm-hmm. often. And so there, the comparison is there. Um, if we do well on the test, we get an A, we feel great about ourselves. Yay, I'm smart. Yeah. If we fail it, oh, I'm such an idiot. I'm a loser. Right. loser. Mm-hmm. And so we're tying our emotions to how we perform in a way that is, it just doesn't serve us very well. Yeah. And that's where imposter syndrome comes in, which is a whole nother topic, right? I mean, yeah. that's then we are like, oh, I must be an imposter because all of these people are brilliant. And I, ha- I, this is the school that I went to, or this is what I got in this. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and just since we're being real here, I'll share that the place where I get the greatest anxiety is when I'm in situations where I think people are smarter than me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did a bit at Stanford medical school a couple of years ago where the Everyone in the room, it seemed, were PhD MDs, like combination. I was just like, wow, wow, these people are really effing smart. And, <laughs> you know, what do I have to add, you know, like that kind of thinking? So, one last thing before we wrap up, 
because you've had amazing success on Instagram. And I think in particular, this is due to your reels. And tell me what it was like for you as a psychologist when we're taught we shouldn't self-market, self-marketing's bad, you don't reveal anything of yourself. And then you have to make this jump to kind of not taking yourself as seriously and putting yourself out there in a vulnerable way on social media. Yeah, great question. So when I first started, it was like in 2016 when I first started private practice and after leaving the hospital and always told, don't put pictures up of your family in your office, never talk about your personal you know, struggles and experiences. Don't even let people know you're married. Like just be very private, you know? And so, and, and so then I got on Instagram because I really resisted social media at first. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just put inspirational quotes and not show my face. <laughs> and I'm just like, people don't need more inspirational quotes. That's just dumb. So as I was getting into it, I realized I'm like, I need to show and give people what they need. And as I was doing that and getting more into that and being more vulnerable and sharing my experiences and sharing my stories, I felt people responded more to that. And just like I did in, in therapy, was sharing appropriate self-disclosure when it mm-hmm. can benefit the client, right? And the cool thing about Reels when I started them last year was I was initially reluctant about it. But as I started doing it, I'm like, that's that's what I value. I, I used to value, I love being in plays. I love performing. Uh, I love creating. I, I love acting. I love being creative. I love doing things that are outside the box. That's why I wanted to go into fashion, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so being being able to, and then I love movies. I love superhero stuff. I love, I, I have encyclopedia, Marvel and DC encyclopedia. So you're a geek too. Totally, totally. That's who I am. And so I'm like, I need to show that side of myself because that's who I am comparing stuff to superhero stuff and talking about those things and, and using the sound for Thanos, you know what I mean? Like that stuff is what gives me energy. So as I started doing that, um, I'm like, yes, people resonated with it because it was showing a different part of me and mm-hmm. it was fun. And I was able to even communicate the message, the same messages, but in a different kind of way. So, you know, again, it was really, um, it tapped into the value of creativity in terms of showing it from a different perspective. Cause I get most of my inspiration often comes from like cartoons and movies and superheroes and making those comparisons. And so, you know, people think that I only watch those things because of my kids. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, they watch them because of me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I love what you're doing online you. and you know, keep it up. I'm proud of your success. And you. um, so le- in wrapping up, I'm just aware of time here. So I, we got to wrap up, but where can people get a hold of you? And perhaps most importantly, what is your Instagram handle? Yes. So my Instagram handle is Lockhart, and they can find me there. Um, also on my website at a new day, So a new day, So a new day, pediatric psychology is my practice in San Antonio. And we offer virtual parent coaching through that platform. And uh, yeah, those are probably the best ways to get in uh, contact and seeing the different uh, classes and courses and reels that I'm doing online. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I greatly appreciate it. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. Thanks, John. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you love this episode, please, please remember to like, rate, review, and share. And if you didn't like it, then you don't have to do a damn thing. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 